If you're with us this morning and without a Bible, just be sure and flag one of these guys that are coming up the aisles right now with a Bible. We want you to hear the Word, but we want you to see it with your own eyes. And if you don't own a Bible, please make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today. Also a reminder, on Sunday nights we go through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, and uh, we'll be studying uh, Daniel chapter 9 this evening, uh, one of the most remarkable prophecies concerning Jesus in the Old Testament. If Jesus isn't the Messiah, nobody is the Messiah, uh, based upon uh, that chapter alone. In fact, the uh, Jewish rabbis um, instruct uh, no Jewish person to study the book of Daniel at all uh, without being properly instructed ahead of time <laughs> and uh, indoctrinated away from Christ Jesus is the Messiah. But there's no getting around it. We'll be doing that tonight at 6 o'clock. I know we're up against the Australian Open uh, and uh, all of you tennis buffs, uh, but uh, we will carry on. Genesis chapter 22, verse 1. Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And then he said, take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains which I shall tell you. And so Abraham rose early in the morning, and he saddled his donkey and took uh, two of his young men with him and Isaac his son. And he split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. And then on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder and worship and we shall, will come back to you. And so Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son, and he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and the two of them went together. But Isaac spoke to Abraham his father and said, My father, and he said, Here am I, my son. And then he said, Look, the fire and the wood, but uh, where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide for himself a lamb for a burnt offering. And so the two of them went together. And then they came to the place of which God had told them. And Abraham built an altar there, placed the wood in order, and he bound his son, Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And so he said, here I am. And he said, do not put your, uh, lay your hand on the lad, nor do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. And so Abraham went and took up the ram, offered it up for uh, a burnt offering instead of his son, and Abraham called the name of the place, the Lord will provide, Jehovah Jireh, as it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And then the angel of the Lord said to Abraham a second time out of heaven, and he said, by myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed all of the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. And so Abraham returned to his young men, and they rose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham dwelt at Beersheba. Let's pray together. Father, we acknowledge your presence with us this morning, and we acknowledge your great desire to take the truths that are found in this portion of your word and give them life and meaning and application into each of our lives, into our understanding of you, into a, the living place of our personal relationship with you. And so we pray right now that you would anoint us by your Holy Spirit 
and that you would give us ears to hear what your Spirit desires to speak to each one of us this morning. And we ask for this work of your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. This uh, passage of Scripture is really two amazing things uh, all at once. And first, it is a record of God's test of uh, Abraham uh, concerning uh, his fear of God. Uh, that is a test of Abraham's faith. God was testing Abraham's obedience, his submission to God, uh, in his relationship with the Lord. And it was really a test by which God was uh, determining and showing Abraham, most of all probably, uh, whether he loved God more than anyone or anything else uh, in the world. And then second, it is a very beautiful and very instructive Old Testament picture of Calvary and the crucifixion of Jesus for our sins and of the love of God the Father uh, present there at Calvary and then the submission of Jesus the Son in, in all of it. This passage, I think, is perhaps second only to Isaiah chapter 53 and uh, Psalm 22 in, uh, in terms of the Old Testament in providing us with deep, deep insights into uh, the New Testament scene of the cross. When we uh, began this series in Genesis, uh, we spoke of the fact that no Christian can ever fully appreciate uh, Jesus uh, based solely upon the New Testament. Uh, but uh, the only way we can fully appreciate him uh, is uh, through his teaching uh, uh, concerning him in the Old Testament. Uh, his life, his teaching, his death, his burial, and his resurrection, uh, independent of, of the Old Testament scriptures, we will never fully understand it because it's not only the New Testament that speaks uh, of Jesus and speaks of Christ, but the Old Testament uh, as well. And just as fully is in many senses. Uh, you remember the writer of the book of Hebrews declared concerning the entire Bible in Jesus, that the volume of the book uh, spoke, speaks of him. Jesus spoke to the Jewish religious leaders of his day. You search the scriptures, speaking of the Old Testament scriptures. The New Testament scriptures did not exist at that time. You search the scriptures for in them you think uh, you can find everlasting life, but these are they which testify of me. And you might remember that old saying that we spoke of uh, uh, concerning the two testaments, the new is in the old concealed and the old is in the new revealed, and it's absolutely true. Now, I, I face a problem here this morning. I have many problems, uh, but one in particular that I face this morning is that both of those lessons, in terms of what this teaches us uh, uh, particularly and personally concerning uh, Abraham and what it speaks to us uh, of, of God the Father and God the Son here, uh, that these lessons are so intricately entwined with one another that uh, trying to separate them would be like trying to separate Siamese twins. Uh, really, any effort to try and do so uh, would either have to produce two independent sermons or, uh, or to uh, separate them in, in one sermon, uh, I think would run the risk of, of losing one or losing the other point or both. And so with this introduction, I will trust your rich preacher-like minds to be able to uh, put both lessons together as you listen. We'll divide the passage into four uh, sections. First, God's call upon Abraham to offer his son Isaac, verses one and two. 
Abraham's obedience in verses 3 through 10, Jehovah Jireh, God's provision uh, of himself, a, a sacrifice, verses 11 to 14, and then God's restatement of his uh, covenant and promises to Abraham in verses 15 through 19. And so we notice God's call upon Abraham to offer or to dedicate his son Isaac uh, to the Lord in verses 1 and 2. I think that if we're going to have any hope of understanding this chapter at all, uh, we need to understand a couple of very important things uh, to begin with. And to notice that in verse 1 that all of this is spoken of as a test. In other words, God never intended Abraham to sacrifice his son to him. It was a test of Abraham's faith in God uh, and in his obedience and his submission uh, to God. And it was a test that Abraham had been prepared for ahead of time. God never sends us into a test or he never leads us into a trial except that he has uh, prepared us for that trial uh, ahead of time. And, uh, and this uh, test was uh, one that Abraham had been prepared for. He never, uh, it, it, the, uh, when God tests us, it is never, the Bible declares, in order that we will fall. But it's always for the purpose of revealing our faith, of strengthening our faith, and strengthening and deepening our relationship with the Lord. Uh, James wrote and he said in chapter 1 verse 2, uh, my brethren count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Well, give me one good reason. Uh, he does. He said, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Uh, Peter speaks in, in the same vein in his first epistle, chapter 1, verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you've been grieved by various trials. Uh, that, and that is a, a reason word, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In Romans chapter 5, Paul speaks to it as well, and he said, and not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. And all of that is good to know when we find ourselves in the middle of suffering, because all it looks like to us is that we're in the middle of suffering. Uh, so often we can't see how, how God is using that suffering to accomplish uh, really deep and eternal things in our lives. The second thing that we need to realize is that while Abraham probably didn't fully recognize that this was uh, a test in the way that we can in looking back, he wasn't mortified by the command. Uh, in fact, he's not even troubled by it uh, because he knew that whatever was happening here that it could not end in the ultimate death of Isaac. Uh, Abraham knew that God had promised to make a great nation of him, uh, speaking of the Jewish people, that God had promised to bless all of the families of the earth through him and through his descendants, the Jewish uh, uh, people. And, and speaking of that blessing of all of the families of the earth through the Jewish people, speaking supremely of supplying the world with a Messiah, with a Savior, Jesus himself, and that God had not only promised to do this through Abraham's lineage, but that he had also promised to do this through the lineage of his son Isaac in chapter 17, verse 21. And thus Abraham goes into all of this, knowing that even if Isaac died, that of necessity God would have to raise him from the dead in order to fulfill all the promises he had made concerning uh, Isaac. 
And so he didn't fully understand the reasons for why God was commanding what he was commanding, but as he put all of it up against God's word, all of it up against God's uh, promises, uh, he knew that he would not ultimately uh, or finally lose his son in all of this. And we see this clearly in the account, if you notice there in verse 5, that upon departing from his two servants, uh, Abraham and his son Isaac leaving them uh, to make their way to the heights of Mount Moriah, that uh, Abraham declared to the, to, the, to the two servants that both he and Isaac would return to them. In the New Testament, in Hebrews chapter 11, uh, the Holy Spirit unmistakably affirms all of this, uh, declaring of Abraham's faith in this regard, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, in Isaac your seed shall be called. And then here it is, concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative uh, sense. The reason that I uh, camp on this a little bit is, is, again, you can't understand the passage without it, but uh, you, you hear this passage continually quoted by atheists as a reason for rejecting uh, the God of the Bible. Uh, why in the world would you worship a God who would call upon uh, a father to sacrifice his own son? And of course, uh, the famous atheist uh, Christopher Hitchens, he got a lot of mileage out of this in his debates. And uh, Sam Harris, who is uh, alive today, uh, does the same thing. Both of them famous uh, for all of that, casting doubt upon God from this passage. And it would have been uh, good for uh, Christopher uh, Hitchens and good for Sam Harris today uh, to read the passage uh, more carefully. Plainly what we have here is that whatever happened here between the two principles, between God and Abraham, whatever men may think of all of it uh, sub, uh, subsequently, nothing about it troubled God at all, and nothing about it troubled Abraham. Abraham is the picture of peace through the entire uh, passage. In all of this, it's important to remember that God and Abraham were friends. And Abraham is called the friend of God repeatedly in the scriptures. Uh, James references this in James chapter 2, verse 23, speaking of Abraham, and he said, and he was called the friend of God. And, and at the risk of getting a little bit uh, ahead of myself, uh, uh, far from uh, this being an event in the Bible, uh, any Christian needs to apologize for. I think that two needful and two wonderful things are happening here. In terms of the needful thing, in light of the fact, think about it, in light of the fact that God was going to bring the Jewish people into existence through Abraham, and given the fact that he was going to provide the world a savior through his bloodline, and given the fact that God was going to make him the foundation for the doctrine of justification on the basis of faith in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, is it any wonder that God would test Abraham's fear of God in an extraordinary way, to test his obedience to God, his commitment to God, his love for God. I mean, wouldn't it be important to know, uh, so to speak, that he loves God more than anything or anyone else in the world? 
that he loves God even more than his promised, long-awaited, and beloved son before entrusting all of that to him. Lest further down the road, God having entrusted all of this to Abraham would discover then now the father of faith flaking out somewhere down the line in terms of his faith. And wouldn't Abraham need to know this about himself, being fully aware of the incredible spiritual uh, privileges that God was entrusting uh, to him? There's nothing extraordinary about this at all in its context. Concerning the wonderful thing that is happening here in this passage, what God is doing with his friend Abraham uh, through this very, very unique trial, and in fact, no other trial could accomplish this thing in Abraham's life. And what God was doing was entrusting uh, to Abraham, in fact, an amazing and a priceless gift from him. And what God was entrusting to Abraham was a glimpse of the pathos that he, God, would one day feel at the giving of his son, his only son, whom he loved as a sacrifice at Calvary in order to provide mankind with the forgiveness of sins. And in some small but very important measure, God was bringing his friend Abraham into a priceless communion with his heart and with his mind concerning the death of his son, Jesus. And anything that makes us more like God, anything that enlarges our understanding of Him, that gives us a shared experience with Him and with His heart, is a priceless experience. Whatever the sacrifice might be that is involved. And here is Abraham and he declares to God, uh, here I am. And the term is a single word in the Hebrew, and it communicated his surrender to any instruction that the Lord wanted to give to him. And God told him there, as you see in verse 2, that he was to offer Isaac as a burnt offering to the Lord. Not as a sin offering, not as a trespass uh, offering, but as a burnt offering. And a burnt offering under the old covenant was a offering of consecration. It was unique among all of the offerings that were made to God uh, in the Old Testament, under the old covenant, in that the entirety of the sacrifice was burnt on the altar to God in the burnt offering. And what it represented in the heart of the worshiper was their complete devotion to God, their complete consecration uh, to God. Uh, and, uh, and that is what was being represented. That's what's in play here in, in all of this. And, uh, and so the burnt offering, a perfect representation of, of what the scene that is, is before us. The Lord was calling here and asking for a burnt offering. He was calling upon Abra Abraham to fully consecrate, to fully surrender Isaac to the will and the purposes uh, of, of God. The, it is very important to notice that God is not calling on Abraham to execute his son. The language isn't used there, but to offer his son. God doesn't say, I want you to go to the land of Moriah and execute him on one of the mountains which I will show you. And the reason that he doesn't do this is that this is a test to see whether Abraham would be willing to offer Isaac to the will and the purposes of God. 
no matter what that will of God for Isaac's life might be, no matter how hard it would be, no matter if it even meant the death of Isaac and being faithful to God's will for his life, and no matter what kind of personal sacrifice that might as a result require of Abraham. And all of this is made clear uh, in verse uh, 12. Again, it, is, it was critical that God's will for Isaac's life be the most important issue in Abraham's life. That Abraham was not to circumvent God's will for Isaac's life out of some carnal, misguided love of a father for his son. Because it was through the lineage of Isaac that God had determined to bring the Savior into the world. And God's plan of salvation for mankind hung in the balance of him being able to do with Isaac exactly as he desired. And not even a father's love for his son was to be allowed to derail that. And yet today, the carnal, misguided love of Christian parents toward their children often proves to be the greatest obstacle of all to God's plan and His purposes for their lives. This natural but misguided determination to protect them from all hardship and all sacrifice, and even if it means protecting them from the will of God for their lives. Do you notice in verse 2, God's description of Isaac? And he describes him uh, to Abraham as your son, your only son, whom thou lovest. Ouch. I mean, uh, you can read that and think it sounds cruel. As if here you have God not only calling upon Abraham to offer up his son, but reminding him that he had only one to offer. Uh, as a, a child of, with Sarah. It isn't like Abraham had 10 or 15 sons to offer to God. That would have been hard enough if it was one among uh, all uh, uh, of them. But to give your only son would represent a, a greater sacrifice still. And again, all of it is a picture of the greatness of the sacrifice God the Father made for us in giving his only begotten uh, son and reminding us as this imagery is here in Genesis chapter 22 that it was a father-son who died on that cross at Calvary 2,000 years ago and that God the Father experienced a father's grief at the death of his son on that day. And that what happened between father and son on that day, on the Mount of Calvary 2,000 years ago, wasn't some heartless, emotionless, theological transaction uh, that was occurring uh, within the Godhead, the doctrine of propitiation, the doctrine of substitution, but that a heavenly father watched his son die on that day. And that sacrifice occurred in the context of a son, an only son, whom the father loved. It is incredibly holy ground that we are on in Genesis chapter 22. But like Abraham, on that day that God the Father gave his son for our sins, he possessed the absolute confidence of his son's resurrection. You notice in verse 2 that all of this was to occur in the land of Moriah. One of the mountains, God said, that I will reveal to, to you. And Mount Moriah would be the very place 
that Solomon would ultimately build the temple, the Old, Te- Temp- Old Testament temple in uh, Jerusalem, and it, he would build it on the land uh, the, and the threshing floor that his father David had purchased from uh, Ornan the Jebusite. And he purchased that land uh, with these words, no, but I will surely buy it for the full price, for I will not take what is yours for the Lord, nor offer burnt offerings uh, with that which costs me nothing. Abraham's obedience is recorded for us in verses 3 through 10. His obedience was immediate. We see there in verse 3, uh, all obedience to God's commandments should be immediate. He rises early in the morning. He saddles his donkey. He took his two servants. He was accompanied by Isaac. He split the wood necessary for the uh, burnt offering, and they all headed to the place which God had spoken of. And then on the third day, verse 4, uh, Abraham saw the place that God had spoken of. And just as Jesus was dead for three days and three nights prior to his resurrection, for three days and three nights uh, uh, of that journey, Isaac was dead, so to speak, in the mind of, of Abraham. And then Abraham, are told in verse 5, set up a camp there, and he instructed, uh, as we've seen, the two servants to stay there with the donkey and await Abraham and Isaac's return after worshiping the Lord. And then you notice that uh, Abraham referred to Isaac as a lad. Uh, the Hebrew word that is used there can re- refers to uh, a young man. It refers to uh, a lad. Uh, Genesis uh, chapters 21 and 22 in Genesis covers a period of about 37 years. Uh, Isaac is at least in his teens at this time, late teens, and very likely somewhere between 25 and 30 years old. Uh, And uh, that's important for understanding the passage as well. And then in verses 6 through 8, Abraham then departed with Isaac to offer him uh, to the Lord. And they departed to the highest point of Moriah. They headed to uh, Mount Moriah, we're told there in in, uh, verse 2 and verse uh, 14. You would always, in offering a sacrifice to God, always go to the highest point of, of any mount or any property that you were going to offer an offering uh, to the Lord. It's interesting, uh, of course, that Mount Moriah is Mount Calvary. It is the very same mountain in Jerusalem that Jesus would be crucified on almost 2,000 years later. Again, all of this a shadow uh, of two fathers and two sons associated with a single place. They traveled uh, in verse 6 uh, with all that was necessary for the burnt offering. And you notice that uh, Isaac, who is a picture of Jesus and all of the, that, this, he has uh, the wood laid upon him. Even as Jesus on the morning of his crucifixion had the cross laid upon him to bear to Calvary until because of the tremendous damage that was done to his body, even prior to his crucifixion, without the strength to bear the cross. Uh, A man by the name of Simon of Cyrene was compelled to bear at the remaining distance. Let me uh, read you something from an ancient Jewish source concerning the imagery that's found here in uh, in verse 6, and and, uh, uh, a a quote from a teaching of Jewish rabbis uh, long, long ago in what is a Jewish midrash. Uh, Quote, the image of Isaac's carrying the wood uh, on which he is to be burned adds enormous power to the story. A midrash relates this to a Roman, not Jewish, a method of execution that was sometimes used on Jewish martyrs. Uh, it is like a person who carries his cross on his own shoulder. 
And that's marvelous from Jewish writings. Here is a, a, a Jewish rabbi declaring it to be a picture of a fu- future Jewish martyr who would carry his own wooden cross toward a Roman execution, exactly as Jesus did. Notice in verse 7, Isaac's question of his father. Uh, We have everything that we need here except the offering. Where is the lamb uh, for the offering? Uh, Now, he had uh, doubtless seen his father offer sacrifices repeatedly through his, his entire life. He knew what was involved in offering a sacrifice. And Abraham answers to him, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering. And uh, again, his confidence in God and all of this. I like it best in the old King James, uh, Genesis 22, verse 8. And Abraham said, my son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. And so they both went, uh, both, so they went, both of them together. Not that God would provide for himself a lamb for a burnt offering, but that he would literally provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering, just as Jesus did. And Isaac, he asks, where is the lamb? John the Baptist provides the ultimate answer when he points his disciples to Jesus and says, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then in verses 9 and 10, Abraham prepared the, to sacrifice Isaac. He builds this altar. He places the wood in order. He binds uh, Isaac, uh, his son. And in all of it, you see Isaac's willingness. He could, this is an elderly father. He's 120 years old. Uh, sure, they lived a longer time in that time, but he's still quite elderly. And any young man in his late teens, and certainly any young man uh, between the age of 25 and 30 could overpower his father and bring all of this to a a screeching halt. But Isaac doesn't do it. And uh, again, he is in all of this, a picture of Christ. And he offers no resistance at all, but willing to lay down his life uh, if it is uh, the Father's will. Jesus declared of himself, John chapter 10, no one takes my life, but I lay it down of my own accord. This isn't a Jewish thing. This isn't a Roman thing. When you see me on that cross and, uh, one day, uh, don't believe any of that. It, this is only happening because I am willing to be the sacrifice for the forgiveness of man's sins. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 7, speaking of Jesus, he was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. There was no protest, no resistance. And he was led as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And Abraham then in verse 10 took the knife and was ready to slay his son. And the Lord then stopped Abraham And verses 10 through 14, and the Lord gets Abraham's attention. Abraham answers, and the Lord declares, verse 12, to to Abraham, do not lay your hand on the lad. Again, God never intended Isaac's death. And in all of this, Abraham had demonstrated a fear of God, a respect for God, that he would be willing to sacrifice even what was most dear to him in all of life in order to obey the Lord. And then uh, the Lord says, now I know, uh, and uh, speaking uh, words uh, used anthropomorphically, the, the, the use of human language to describe God's perspective in all of this, And all that God wanted was Abraham's uh, willingness uh, here. His willingness was enough, not the act itself. And how often it is that our complete surrender to God in a trial uh, then brings that trial to an end. And then verse 13, God provided a sacrifice for Abraham, a ram 
which he offered up to the Lord instead of his son. All of this a picture of of one of the great doctrines of the Bible, and that is substitution. The substitutionary uh, atonement concerning salvation. And Abraham then in verse 14, he named the place uh, after what he learned from God there, after what he experienced from God in that site. And he called the place Jehovah-Jireh, which means literally God sees, but is uh, translated for us most often, uh, the Lord will provide. And again, all of it being a shadow of the greater provision that God would make for the forgiveness of our sins uh, through the death of His Son some 2,000 years uh, later. God saw and God provided for our sins through the death of His Son there on Calvary. And then God in verses 15 through 19 uh, he reaffirms all of his promises to Abraham. Abraham and Isaac then return to the two servants, and then all four of them return home to the city of Beersheba. From this passage, again, we have a record of God's test of Abraham's faith, of his obedience to God, of his submission uh, in his relationship with God. And then we have this beautiful Old Testament picture of Calvary, the crucifixion of Jesus for our sins and the love of God the Father for a son and the submission of Jesus the Son to all of it. And I want to close with just a simple application to our lives as Christians this morning. Any trial or test of our faith that God brings and into our lives that then makes us more like Him in some way or enlarges our understanding of Him in some way that results in a deep communion with God that we would never otherwise know, that causes us to partake of His heart. That is a priceless thing. Whatever the sacrifice is required, whatever the sacrifice that is involved in that test of faith, for instance, It is only when we begin to experience the rejection of others uh, for our faith in Christ as Christians and even begin to experience the blasphemies of others for simply loving God, for simply knowing God, for simply obeying God that we can then begin to appreciate something of what Jesus felt while experiencing those very same things in the course of his life and his ministry. And the same thing is true when betrayal comes into our life because of our obedience to God. Uh, As Jesus was betrayed by Judas with a kiss, And so it is concerning lies that are told us, slander that is spoken against us, the loneliness that we experience simply for knowing God, simply for loving God, simply for obeying God, simply for taking His call and His purposes for our lives seriously. Because at such times, it is in those times that we then share something in common with Jesus. And then we then say, I know something of that as we read the Gospels and the life and the ministry of Jesus. And we gain some small sense of how these things must have affected Him and how they must have hurt Him. And those things bring us into a deeper understanding, a deeper communion and fellowship with Him. 
which is invaluable. It is priceless. And if you think I'm going out uh, on a little bit on a limb in all of this and teaching this, allow me to cite the Apostle Paul concerning the very thing as he wrote to the church in Philippi chapter 3, verse 7. But what things were gained to me, these things I have counted lost for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having my own righteousness which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. And then here it is. That I might know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death if by any means I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. And here Paul wrote of some of the suffering that he had experienced for simply being a Christian, simply being obedient to God's call upon his life, even as Abraham experienced here. And the Apostle Paul rejoiced in all of that suffering for a reason. He said in verse 8 of Philippians chapter 3, you can study it later on your own, he says, for, for is a reason word, for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. He says in verse 10 in that same chapter, that, that's another reason word, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. And the words knowledge and know that Paul uses in that section of scripture, they come from the same Greek word and is the word gnosko. And the word gnosko does not refer to intellectual knowledge. It does not refer to merely knowing a lot about Jesus, but it always refers to a knowledge that comes by experience. In other words, Paul rejoiced in the sharing, the, in sharing the sufferings that Jesus went through because they caused him to know and to understand, to become familiar with Jesus personally, experientially, in a way that he could not otherwise experience. And these kind of trials, these kind of sufferings, are ones, uh, uh, one of the ways that God brings us into a deeper understanding of himself a deeper understanding of his ways and, and into a deeper relationship with him. And always to do something that produces within us a greater understanding of the God that we worship and then brings us into a deeper relationship with him. That is always on the part of God to entrust something priceless to us, whatever the sacrifice that's required of us to receive that priceless something. And Paul said if suffering, testings, and trials are another way to know him, then I will gladly experience them. And in all of this, Abraham learned in terms of this knowledge that comes by experience, Abraham learned a new name for God. He learned about God and what God was like in a way he had never known before, and calling him Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides. And there is always such a revelation for us in these kind of trials that God brings into our lives. As Charles Spurgeon once said, 
I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. Not because of the wave, but because of what we learn about God in such trials and how close these things bring us to God. One poet put, put it this way, I walked a mile with pleasure, she chattered all the way, but left me none the wiser for all she had to say. I walked a mile with sorrow, and there, oh, words said she, but oh, the things I learned from her when sorrow walked with me. And how else will we ever come to truly and fully know experientially the man of sorrows acquainted with grief except to walk such a path ourselves at times in our Christian life? Let's stand together now and we'll close in prayer. Father, we thank you this morning for how you sanctify with your love and with your wisdom every single trial that comes into our lives. And we thank you, Lord, how you, even beyond that, will lead us into extraordinarily difficult circumstances that we would never choose for ourselves and would have wanted to escape by any means possible, thinking that all of it works against us, that there'll be nothing good that can come of this season within our life. And then, Lord, how faithful you are by your Holy Spirit to draw us near into a depth of relationship we'd never known before and into an understanding of you and of your ways that we would never otherwise know. And you then make it one of the mountaintop experiences within our spiritual life and pilgrimage. And we thank you, Lord, for such seasons within our life, your grace toward us, your strength, your power that you impart to us at such times to bring us into such relationship and revelation. We confess what small, small, petty, feeble people each of us would be spiritually except for these kind of seasons that you bring us into. And Father, we pray for each man and woman that is in this room and in the fellowship hall and within the sound of my voice this morning, who is in such a trial and such a test this morning. And we pray you would use this time in your word to bring hope, to bring faith, and to bring perspective to their lives and to this season. And we ask for that work of your Holy Spirit as well. In Jesus' name, amen.